Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back again to our podcast. Um, and also welcome back to our, our usual contributors, Alex, Tom and Kerry. Thank you all for joining me again. Hi, Chris. Nice to be So an overview of the week that we've seen. Uh, here in the UK, we've now got shops and non-essential businesses reopening again. So the high street's a little bit busier than it has been over the last couple of months. We've seen the coronavirus cases across the world hit the 8 million mark and a start of what has been in a news stories, people predicting the second wave of infections uh, in China, Japan and New Zealand, the ones of note. Uh, and also continued growth of, of virus cases uh, for the first wave in, in Brazil, Russia, India and Mexico. We've also seen some escalating tensions in North Korea. We've blown up a layers in office, which uh, they used to use for uh, talks between with the South. Um, so lots of issues going on, lots of developments, um, some positive news again. But the guys have been looking at, as we have done on many a podcasts, uh, some new stories which have caught their eye. So uh, why don't we start with, with Kerry's story, uh, who's been looking at an investigation of Farley. Exactly. This story broke a few days ago, but it's no doubt uh, helping to support the iron ore price uh, even further. Uh, the Federal Labor Prosecutor's Office in the Brazilian state of Pará, and I hope I'm saying that right, uh, has uh, actually opened an investigation into essentially whether or not Vale is uh, correctly protecting its workers against the coronavirus. Uh, to put things in perspective, Vale's largest single mine, the Carajas mine, is in that state. And any investigation that was defined that Valet has failed to put the proper safety precautions in place uh, would almost certainly impact production there. Uh, this is Valet's largest mine by far, one of the largest on earth. Uh, and and I can't see a way that uh, if they were forced to, uh, to use some form of social distancing or put additional safety measures in place, which they do not appear yet to have done, uh, done uh, to a great degree, that uh, production wouldn't be impacted somehow there. Um, so I think that's something to watch very, very closely. Um, this has become an epicenter in Brazil for a, uh, one of the uh, one of the major spikes of the COVID virus, and so uh, and so there is cause here for real concern um, with the the miners in that area having a a very bad infection rate. Yeah, it is. It's difficult for Brazil because I'm, I'm reading this morning that they're projected to hit over one million cases. You know, this is a really hard hit country by the virus. And... Exactly. And it's a country where government advice has been, to say the least, lacking um, on, on, on how to process this. So, you know, it's very interesting that the state prosecutor has opened this investigation, not the federal prosecutor of Brazil, of course, because uh, because Bolsonaro's government probably has no interest in in pushing an investigation. However, the uh, the state prosecutor is, is quite upset about this. So let's watch what happens and how the state courts find as they conduct uh, as they conduct this investigation. Exactly. It could be a story which blows up and has all sorts of implications for the iron ore market and therefore the dry freight as well. Exactly. Exactly. Alex, your story this week has been talking about migrant remittances. Yeah. So this is an article I found in this week's Economist, and it talks about how migrant remittances have been hit by COVID-19. 
Um, it's a, the report says that in 2019, 554 billion US dollars were sent uh, around the world as part of remittances. Um, that in El Salvador and Nepal, um, it's actually uh, a fifth of the GDP is accounted for by remittances. Um, now, this co the COVID-19 pandemic has hit both sides of this trade, with both the senders and the receivers being hit. And there are not only the actual amounts being sent, but their ability to receive it. For example, cash obviously now is a, is a major issue in third world countries. And, and a lot of people don't have the ability to receive the funds electronically or to put, get their hands on it electronically. Um, so I think this is this is very has very serious consequences for a lot of emerging nations um, and their workforces. I think this could also add to what we talked about last week in terms of COVID nineteen having an effect on social unrest as people's finances are stretched even further and are compounded even further by by the pandemic. Yeah, I guess it's something that which is we also talked about last week about. Um, a lot of these developing countries with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative are quite debt laden. And the fact that a lot of the, the way that they pay for that is through, you know, selling goods and everything else. But if, as, as you pointed out in your article, this is going to take a hit to GDP for people sending money home, then that's just another factor which these countries have to take into account for, for paying of these bills. So it's an, it's an extra level that. of governance, I think, that's going to be required in, in very difficult times. And you know, it might shift focus away or perhaps gets ignored. We're, we're going to find out. So um, my news article for the week, um, which is caught my eye, is about um, US rates, US uh, interest rates potentially pushing below zero. I know something that we've seen already uh, for quite a while in Japan uh, and Europe. We've seen that. And uh, Bloomberg sending out a notification to people to go, you know, all your systems that you've built and they've never had negative numbers in them before. Uh, you may need to check them that they still work. So that's something which um, you know, is, is an odd point to think about. And maybe it's something there that uh, the many uh, brokers come across is when they suddenly get into negative pricings and negative spreads, everything goes out the window and you're, you're almost trading with yourself. Um, but this is kind of thing which uh, they're telling people to kind of change some of their models, um, switching from the Black Skulls model to the uh, Bachelet model, which is something which uh, can incorporate negative numbers. Uh, so uh, Louis Bachelier is, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the first person to model stochastic process, which is uh, we call now Brownian motion. For those who uh, remember their GCC chemistry lessons with a bit of uh, smoke and a light, and you can see all the particles moving. Uh, and his PhD thesis was one of the first points used to uh, help valuing stock options. So a little bit of uh, economic history for people on a, on a Wednesday morning. But uh, yes, you could potentially get... U.S. negative rates. The U.S. have already saying the Fed chair, Jay Powell, said that, you know, sub-zero rates are not something appropriate or a useful policy now, but who knows where that situation takes us in the future. Even that statement is a pretty big step back from what I recall used to be the standard position of the U.S., which is negative rates are wrong and we will never do it, right? So, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, not appropriate for now sounds a lot less certain than 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 what it used to, uh, exactly. it strikes me, from the, from the Fed. Make but, interest yeah. rates great again. Next <laughs> event, <I> mean, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> so um, let's finish off with, with Tom. Uh, what story do you bring us from Singapore? Uh, it's an article uh, around um, coal uh, being used in power utilisation. It's something we touched on um, a few weeks back when we were talking about Japanese power uh, and essentially how 
that we we basically have a tail of two hemispheres at the moment, uh, with the US and and Europe heavily cutting back on its on its coal usage for for power, uh, whereas Asia, as it's started to come back online, is sort of sort of ramping up. So, as some listeners might remember, what we were talking about was demand for electricity has slumped aggressively uh, on the back of the um, the, the pandemic, uh, which has obviously had an impact on coal utilization, which is quite a strong component of global uh, power production. Um, so, it's, so it's taken a hit there, but uh, it's also taken a hit because Europe uh, and the US have, have found that with, with lower demand for electricity in general, they've been able to pick up the the sl- pick up the sort of the the um, the, the demand sorry can be can be um, met with uh, renewables rather than uh, more dense energy uh, more dense energy production like coal. So the UK, for example, has not used any coal uh, in any of its power production since the 9th of April now, uh, which is the longest period it's gone without coal. Um, for a long, long time. US coal utilization is forecast to be down 26% year on year. Um, and um, <clears throat> similar sort of stories across the rest of Europe, uh, where there's the big, big cuts in, in coal utilization for power production. The flip side of that um, is that in, in Asia, um, we're seeing a big growth in coal utilization. So currently, total clo- um Total global coal demand, uh, 77% of that is is Asian, uh, and that's forecasted to grow to 81% by 2030. Um, so, you know, there's there's forecasted in in increased growth of uh, of coal coal power production out of Asia. China is looking to add 130 gigawatts of coal-fired generating capacity over the next five years. Uh, with India looking to do the same. Um, so, really, you've got you know, it. it, it it very neatly highlights what we've talked about before that in in Europe and the US you have this sort of big push now towards a cleaner cleaner energy future uh, which we saw highlighted by you know, big announcements from BP this week um, but in the sort of the the more developing economies um, um, that are not quite so far along the industrialization um, pathway as, as sort of Europe and the US are. They still very much want to burn coal. It's a cheap energy source, uh, and they are picking up the slack for for demand. So you've, you've seen some big suffering uh, in terms of US coal production um, because the, the domestic market has disappeared, but export numbers have been very, very good as economies have started to, to come back online uh, in, in Asia. So... It's very positive on the one sense from a, a, a green policy perspective that Europe and the US is is starting to move away from coal quite rapidly now, but that's very much offset by what's been seen in, in Asia and their continued reliance on coal. So you're saying there are there are some positives for the coal market at the moment, albeit minor ones. Good Lord, already. We usually save that for the end, don't we? But, uh... <laughs> yeah. I was surprised when I didn't see you to come up with a point. But on that coal point, is it going to be something which is going to continue once we get back to previous levels of, of electricity demand in Europe and the US? It is a question which I guess we'll need to, to keep an eye on. But uh, thank you for that, Tom. Let's move on to a new way of presenting the information that we've got. So we're going to move on to some of our, our markets which we cover here at FIS. And we're going to go through looking at well, you know what price movements have we had, 
what changes there have been on the supply and demand front and any other factors which have been influencing where the markets have been moving. So Kerry, why don't you start us off talking about some of the, the price movements in the dry freight and the copper markets? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I mean, look, the dry the dry freight market, and in particular, the Cape market has absolutely spiked on both the physical and the paper. <clears throat> we, uh, we talked last week a little bit about uh, seeing uh, a short squeeze happening on the physical in the market, and that has continued with uh, C3, that Brazil-China route driving up to $19.40 done today as against $11.30 early on last week when we last discussed this. Um, this in turn has caused the paper to spike, setting, a, setting off a lot of stops, uh, which saw the Cape July contract absolutely go through the roof yesterday. Um, this time last week, we were discussing the July contract in the region of 13,500 and it's now trading at 21,500 today. Uh, well, the back end has been a lot more sedate, um, moving only a tick up comparatively from uh, $13,000 last week on the Cal 21 to uh, 13,900 trading today. Um, meanwhile, on the copper markets, the three month LME gained 0.7% overnight. Uh, it's ticking up slightly amid optimism um, generally about uh, crude oil output cuts and signs of recovery for crude demand. Uh, which are helping the price along, um, while the alley market is also ticking up just a touch, uh, closed 0.73% higher. Uh, this is especially being driven by movements in the most liquid SHFE Shanghai market, uh, which moved up quite a bit recently on expectations of Chinese recovery. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's where the, uh, the market's been moving lately. Yeah, so you were talking about the oil markets and probably less... Uh, less active in terms of price movement than the, the, the dry FFAs. But we did see that um, kind of flattening off last week. We did touch around that $42 mark uh, on Brent. We traced back down again, and we're now kind of pushing towards that 42 level again. So a, a little pause, uh, but again, renewed activity towards to kind of push these levels up. If you keep in mind that um, in April, we were at 18-year lows at $20. I mean, that's you know, almost doubling of price since April. <laughs> we we talk true. about it's not moved much, but it, yeah. it has. But if you, you look at what the other people are, are doing on this, money managers seem to have not changed their positions much on things. Uh, if you look at Brent, they've become maybe a little bit uh, more bullish, uh, increasing by 12 million barrels yeah. on their positions. But in terms of US, um, WTI, unchanged, gasoline and other products, perhaps a little bit, more bearish on yeah. things, but really not too much movement uh, price-wise. But we are seeing again another a move up, uh, especially this morning, uh, back to that 42 level that we saw. Um, Tom, what about iron ore? Um, on iron ore, it, it, it's sort of, um, for the first time in a while, been a relatively steady steady week. Um, uh, relative to sort of the last 10 weeks, it feels kind of range bound. So if we look at uh, the June contract, uh, this time last week, we closed it uh, 103.20 and the Q4 was around 90 spot 40. Um, and today, June is trading 130 spot 20 and Q4 is trading one, uh, 90 spot 25. So essentially exactly where we left it last week. There's been a bit of up and down along the way. So 
we we rallied two bucks into the weekend and and have, and have come back off again to to where we are now. Um, so it's 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 been a relatively stable week uh, compared to what we've been experiencing for the last sort of ten to twelve weeks in iron ore. Um, the sort of principal driving factors behind that at the moment. I mean, obviously, I think you know, Kerry's touched on it. The Vale story is a, is the continuing sort of theme through iron ore at the moment and is is really the it's not the only story in iron ore but it it is this the story that everyone is watching but i think um one of the things that we do need to keep an eye on now and it, it's 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 a it's a global uh, situation uh, really but but china has had a sort of big uh, relatively big influx of new cases being uh found in beijing um so a hundred or so confirmed cases uh, in Beijing, and another another food market, um, which is obviously of great concern. Um, so we'll see how that plans out, and if they will um, sort of crack down as hard as they did last time, or if there will be a more measured response as they try and protect the sort of recovery just as it's getting going. Yeah, Tom, you're alluding to those those new cases which we we talked about at the start of the. The opening to this podcast and a lot of that can impact on on demand so let's go on looking at the demand factors uh, of our market so talking of china it's had quite a recovery from what had happened earlier in the year as one of the, fir- the first countries to go into to lockdown and if you look at its oil imports for example in may were 11.296 million barrels per day i think we was pushing to new records um refinery through Throughput was 13.69 million barrels, up 8.2% from May. So that has been a lot of the driving factors of people going, oh, look, it's great. You know, China, one of the biggest oil consumers in the world is is back. It's buying lots. But an, an error of caution on that factor is that a lot of this has been driven by the fact of oil prices being low, going, well, actually, we can actually buy a lot of this in, stock up, ready, because you know, from looking at factors, this you know, oil price is only going to really go up, and a lot of people are predicting that uh, price is going to go up. So if we can fill up our, our tanks while we're, we're low, you know, we're with the benefit here. So that has driven a lot of of the demand factor. But is it actually the demand for which they they require, or is it a lot of backfill and looking to the future for this oil price? You will have to wait and see in terms of other countries and their yeah. demand when things start to ease up even further for. Other countries, <clears throat> India has shown some bounce back on on certain factors for the demand side, but not to the levels pre-virus yet. So, when these countries recover to that level, this is something we can do. And the the IEA came out with its report yesterday saying you know, demand is going to grow by 5.7 million barrels a day to 97.4. Well, why this is in 2021? But again, they're looking at factors like the airlines, which you know, Kerry, you've talked about that being a really hard hit yeah. industry and. Even now, I mean, so you've had a bit of recovery, but even now you're down 70% uh, on air travel Absolutely. levels. And the IEAs are putting this as a factor of going, you're not going to see all demand at levels it was until 2022 because of that. So those are the factors we've seen there in oil. What yeah. about dry freight, Kerry? Well, the demand from dry freight, as you know, particularly from the Cape size, comes comes largely from the miners. Um, and uh, one of the fascinating things about this recent spike on Cape is it's occurring against the backdrop of a drop in Brazilian exports, not a rise in Brazilian exports. Um, so, you know, what we've seen is, you know, to year to date, Vale shipments have fallen by something like 12% year on year, which is one of the reasons, ironically, the iron ore price has been held up so well. Um, however, 
That led to a lot of owners not wanting to ballast their ships over when the rates were quite low. Uh, and bear in mind, you know, it, it takes, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's nearly a 12 week round trip to get from China to Brazil and back again. Um, and so it takes a lot of commitment and quite a few weeks of advanced planning to start ballasting towards Brazil to take those cargoes. This has not happened. And so what we saw wasn't so much a demand spike on dry freight, but uh, a short squeeze, particularly on that one route, Brazil, China, where not enough ballasters have been available. That's driven that rate through the roof. Um, from the Australian perspective, the other big story, of course, on Cape size demand comes from Australia, both on iron ore and coal. Uh, bear in mind that it is the end of the financial year for the Australians. Um, so just before the end of June, it is fairly standard to see the large Australian miners push out just as much iron ore and coal out the door as they possibly can to get those numbers up uh, as we head into the, uh, the end of June and the end of the financial year. So that has started to bleed off some of the excess supply of, of ships in the Pacific as well, which has kept these cape rates moving up. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting story because this isn't really a demand driven story per se on the, on the, uh, on the dry freight. Well, let's move to su supply then. I mean, you, in terms of things for supply on the, on the oil side, uh, we've had problems with OPEC cuts and oh, some OPEC countries going, I'm going to massage these numbers. I haven't actually done it. Getting told off by the big dogs of OPEC and then going, so if they don't fulfill these cuts now, they will be doing it later. You know, yeah. Told off by a head teacher kind of level of, of things. So it, it's it's difficult one. And you've also seen the tropical storm Cristobal go through the US Gulf, which has had problems in terms of production for, for oil and gas there. But if you look at the API prediction for US stock levels this morning, it's another build. So it, the, maybe the demand factor still hasn't really recovered in the US there. But um, Tom, let's bring you in again and talk about the kind of iron ore factors on, on demand and supply. Because um, we've talked previously about uh, the steel and the steel inventories. What are we seeing there and how could that be impacting things? Yeah, so, so we, um, we've seen a continual uh, sort of destocking um, of steel mill inventory until, until last week when it was the first week-on-week uh, -week decline of steel mill inventory. Um, the last couple of weeks, we've seen that sort of destocking um, increase. Um, so um, we've, we've, we've seen um, steel moving, but trading volume on, on steel um, from late May is now down 20%. Um, so we, as much as steel has been moving to this point, uh, we are, we're now seeing a sort of fairly marked slowdown in that. Um, steel demand. So China has has really been the, the driving factor. It's, it's all been domestic um, sort of demand that, that has been taking up this iron ore and steel production. Um, but one of the things I, we, we talked about fairly early on in this podcast series was that you know, China can pick up a lot of the world slack, most of the world slack. It's 70% of um, iron ore consumption. Um, so Europe and, and and the US are you know bit part players in this complex, but it does appear now that, that you know maybe China is starting to get to a point where it is saturated. There's been a lot of infrastructure projects spend being announced and and whatever that that will take quite a long time to come to fruition. So demand the, the long term demand is there, but the, the the shorter term demand picture seems to be falling off a little bit uh, than 
from from the sort of strength that we'd seen through April and May, really. Um, one of the things from the you know, the, the economic side um, to to note is that analysts globally were sort of broadly expecting an interest rate cut uh, in China uh, at the end of last week, uh, which didn't come to fruition. So from a liquidity perspective, there are starting to be a few sort of concerns being voiced throughout the market that there may be issues with cash availability and and debt financing moving forward um, because that interest rate didn't cut didn't come um, so that, that there may well be a liquidity squeeze uh, that comes to fruition over the next uh, three to six months off the back of that as well so that's that's you know nothing imminent happening off the back of that but that's certainly one to watch from the demand side yeah and I guess the demand side as well is picking up again what we talked about last week the kind of Belt and Road Initiative there are global <clears throat> construction projects which are being put on hold put in jeopardy cancelled which itself you know China as you say is a large chunk of of the demand but there's still enough worldwide that could have an impact on us as well to to keep an eye out for let's yeah. bring in uh Kerry again I think you talk about some points on, on copper yeah I mean I, th- I think copper uh I, the, the base metals in general particularly copper it's a supply story right now you know I think we've got to watch the fact that uh, Chile's government said on Monday it would extend the state of catastrophe in place uh, since mid-march by another 90 days they are having another surge of coronavirus down in Chile as well. Uh, and so I think that is, we're seeing that effect push the LME copper prices north um, as well. You know, demand, there is some optimism about it, but it's really a supply side story now. Um, in terms of the alley markets, I think most people are watching the potential reintroduction of US tariffs on Canadian aluminium. Um, which, uh, which were one of Trump's original tariffs that were taken off fairly quickly to try and make nice with Canada. Um, he's under a lot of pressure to put those back on. Um, and what we're seeing there is actually, uh, that's been supporting the price of the US uh, Midwest Alley premiums in particular, pushing those up quite a lot. So it will be an interesting story to watch yeah. uh, how we move from there. So we've, we've made it almost 27 and a half minutes with, without mentioning Trump, but we've <laughs> turned it in towards the Finally end. broke it. <laughs> Finally broke it. But yeah, no, thank you very much for all those points on the supply and demand. Um, but we've also got some other factors which might not necessarily fit into that, some other factors uh, to keep into account. Looking at BP, and I mean, we alluded to some of the job cuts which happened last week, 10,000 jobs, uh, and an analysis by the FT saying that they're going to take about $17.5 billion hit on assets after you know, cutting their outlook on energy prices. It, I know that it was, I think it was one of the, maybe it was head of BP or one of their other um, major uh, managers was saying this, you know, this is going to be impacted till 2022 at the least uh, okay. on oil prices for them as a, as a company. Uh, again, more US shale oil companies uh, filing for bankruptcy. This is um, producer extraction was the latest one uh, reading yesterday. Uh, and also a related point to kind of the products. We've seen a lot of um, maintenance in terms of refineries, uh, as well as China taking its, uh, one of its well, building one of its newest, largest refineries in its uh, major uh, refining hub. So that could take off a lot of refining capacity for a year or so. Uh, and we're not seeing levels back to uh, pre-virus refining anywhere near that. I mean, China's one is getting there, but in terms of a lot of Asia, a big refining area for, for the oil industry, it, it you're looking around about 
70%, a lot of these countries are still at. So um, an impact related to those kind of product levels is on, on the scrubbers and that kind of a difference between the low sulfur and high sulfur fuel oil. We've seen a lot of stories now of these companies who are delaying or cancelling part of their orders of these scrubber orders <clears throat> going, oh, we'll cancel five, but we'll still yeah. take the nine that we, we had previously. A lot of this has been driven on the fact that companies are now tight for cash. So if they can cancel those, they can keep things in and things taking over for hopefully to ride out the crisis. Uh, and also by that collapse of the, the hi-fi spread, which numerous times we point out that January level of over $320 difference. never sustainable, was it? Never. So, it's, yeah. It just comes straight off. Yeah. We're looking, you know, mid-60s now. So that so, is a huge drop. That's, it's it's very difficult to argue, yeah, pay, pay three and a half million bucks. <clears throat> to install a scrubber on a Cape Side yeah. when, uh, yeah, when, uh, when that spreads come down so far. Yeah, so. It definitely increases your payback time. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It does not make the, uh, the treasurers of these companies look for, uh, too lightly on that investment. Yeah. Um, Can we some extra points uh, on, on the freight? Really just one general point, and I, and I, I feel like sometimes I take on the role of, of the perma bear on this podcast. But one thing everyone should keep in mind on the freight is that there is absolutely not a global shortage of tonnage, um, particularly for the Cape size market. The fleet's relatively young. It's very well supplied. Uh, there's not a vast amount of room for, for huge scrapping that could take away older vessels from that fleet. Um, and so, you know, the, this phenomenon of this immense spike that we're seeing now is probably temporary. By all means, make hay. <laughs> you know, while, while, while it lasts, but, um, but, you know, fundamentally there is not, and will be, not be a global shortage of tonnage this year, uh, based on the levels of dry bulk demand. So, uh, so I think people should just remember that moving forward. Good point. Any uh, last points, Tom, or general factors about the market before we uh, close for this week? No, that's all from me. Thank you, Chris. Uh, any last puns from Alex? No, nothing for me. I'm <laughs> saving them all for next week. Saving them all for next week. Okay, good. But uh, thank you very much, guys, for uh, joining us and bringing all those uh, points about our markets and your news stories. Uh, and to everyone listening, hopefully you'll join us again next week for our, our general overview and some more specifics on the markets that we cover here at FIS. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick.